Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tours from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. In this episode of Bike Tour Adventures, I get to meet Katie, also known as You've Got to Wander. As a female adventurer, Katie's an inspiration to women all over the world to get out there, seek new challenges, and overcome bigger and bigger obstacles. From cycle touring across the world to hiking the lengths of England and New Zealand, Katie has some wonderful stories, advice, and knowledge to share with our listeners. Katie, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, let's start off. I always start off just by having people introduce themselves. So why don't you tell us about yourself? Oh, okay. My name is Katie. Uh, I'm 35 years old, originally from Warrington, which is in the northwest of England. Um, And yeah, I've just spent the last two years exploring a little bit of the world by bicycle and on foot. Mm -hmm. And um, what did you do before cycling? I like to call it BC, you know. A BC, a BC. I worked <laughs> as uh, a wildlife guide uh, oh, wow. uh, for a field centre in the Highlands of Scotland, so in the very north of Scotland. Um, so that uh, basically involved taking groups of people out and about uh, all the way across Scotland, spotting wildlife, talking to them about uh, conservation issues, Scottish history, land use, and and everything in between. So it's very varied. Oh, wow. Do you have Scottish heritage then or just happen to work? In- I don't know. Just an absolute love for, for Scotland um, and, yeah, picking up lots and lots of information along the way, guiding. So, yeah, it was a, a really fantastic three Sweet. years uh, that I spent doing that before and did you I have a, on the bicycle. A specialized education for that? Like, or did you study animals and conservation and whatnot? Yeah, so I studied biology at university and then went on to do a master's. But before going to 
Scotland, I worked out on St Kilda um, mm-hmm. as a research assistant on a, on a sheep project and studying uh, a subspecies of field mouse, so quite niche. Oh, yeah. um, and then from there, I went out to uh, Namibia as well to uh, help with a couple of PhDs uh, on the Salvis Baboon project. So that was 2014. Oh, that's really cool. So I've kind of had... Um, yeah, I've kind of been looking at the conservation sector for, for quite a while and, and guiding was the perfect way to be able to talk at people all day. So it fulfilled that for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you, yeah, I was going to say you've always been quite active then with the outdoorsiness and of life and experiences. Yeah, I suppose my life has really veered between periods of quite intense physical activity and then being pretty averagely fit um so for example i rode throughout university mm-hmm. uh, so i spent four years doing that and then when i moved to london um i started running quite a long way oh, okay. um so i started running some marathons and then just up the distance to, to ultra marathons no um, kidding oh wow then, like, then ended up running the marathon to saab randomly which all started with a um, a bottle of wine around at my friend's house, which I think is where most of these slightly random ideas begin. Um, but, you know, from from there, I ran the Mother de Sable in 2011. Um, but then most of it's just hill walking and being outdoors, being outside. So, yeah, nothing quite as extreme. So, so it wasn't very tough or anything? Um, <laughs> what, we, yeah, which bit? You know what? The marathon to start, I absolutely loved. I met loads of amazing people there, and if I had the same amount of time to train again, oh, I would, I would do it again. It was absolutely no a kidding, fantastic yeah. experience for sure. Yeah. Oh wow! I didn't even know you did that. So that I had nothing in my questions about it, and I would have loved to talk more about <laughs> it. But that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I, yeah, I kind of always have that little future dream of doing some kind of like ultra distance running thing, like one of the yeah, yeah. I don't know which one though, but like maybe Marathon de Sable or maybe the um, Arctic. You know the the ones the run racing series. It's got like the mountain one, the desert one, the the desert ultra, yeah. the mountain ultra, like. Love to try yeah, those out. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, just so you know, I started my marathon disarm training with a 5K run. That's that's where it all started from. Nice. So you don't have to be, you definitely don't have to be a, a marathon runner to sign up for it because I definitely wasn't. Well, I just uh, spent a fortune on a bike and I can't afford new running shoes. So I guess it's cycling, <laughs> cycling for Barefoot now. running. <laughs> Barefoot running's all the rage. I'm yeah. sure you could find something. Um, was it? tough was it a tough decision to quit the job and go on a bike tour and how did you come about making this decision in all honesty it wasn't such a tough decision because I really felt like I'd been leading up to the moment that I was going to leave my job for quite a long time Mm -hmm. um so I'd set myself the task of saving enough money um really for the previous three years uh to be able to afford to go so once I knew that I was going to hit that goal um it was just a matter of when I was going to go and and kind of the if got taken away um of course, it's really daunting to leave a full-time job that you really love and people that you really love working with. Um, that is daunting in itself, but everybody was so supportive of really, my decision nice. um, that, to be honest, I'm pretty sure they were quite relieved that I was going because I've been talking about it for so long. I think they were just like, okay, you go now. Go and get this out of your system. Um, but yeah, it was it was a, a, a good decision on my part and, and one that the lead-in had quite uh-huh. a long time. 
And they're probably all Scottish and like, ah, get out of here, English girl. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, go and cycle your bike. Yeah, you'll be happier <laughs> cycling away. Yeah. Um, how long did it take you to prepare? So you said you started saving. It took about three years to save what you needed. Exactly that. Yeah. So financially about three years. Um, so I bought my bike in the May of 2017. So the year, uh, just about a year before I left on mm-hmm. the bike trip in March, 2018, just because I wanted to, I knew which bike I wanted and I wanted to familiarize myself with it, add pannier racks, change the seat, all the usual things. Um, and Really, my kit was kind of a mixture of things that I already had, especially camping gear. Uh, and then I purchased other specialist kit. Um, and that was mainly bought, you know, like three months to, to the day I was leaving. And um, so there was a bit of flurry of purchasing activity yeah. on the lead up to my departure. Yeah. Did you, um, had you done much bike touring in the past or any at all? Um, hardly any at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so the year before I'd taken my bicycle to the Shetland Isles for a week. Um, so they're a group of islands off the north coast of mainland Scotland. Okay. So it's quite wild up there. Um, and it's really where I first learned about the trauma of cycling into a headwind, um, because Shetland <laughs> is known for get for being very windy. Um, so the weather was terrible and my tent nearly got blown away and I got lashed by rain but I absolutely loved it um and I knew that it was yeah it was going to be a a really great experience but yeah by no means when I set off did I even consider myself a cyclist and probably still don't fair enough fair enough um why why the UK to Malaysia I set off or I wanted to set off for my um my front door uh, in England or my parents' front door in England because there's something very simple about the act of cycling away from home. So that was always in my mind right from the beginning of yeah. wanting to do the trip. Um, also, because I didn't have a huge amount of, of bike touring experience, it really felt like if I set off from home, then it was really familiar territory, kind of felt like the stabilizers were still on. Um, and and then obviously when I got further and further away from home, then, um, you know, you kind of experience all kinds of different mm-hmm. things. Um, so that's the reason I wanted to start off from England. In terms of why I wanted to go across Europe and Asia, I think because it's so culturally diverse. There are yeah. so many different landscapes to cycle through, so many different countries, lots of different languages and religions. So that really appealed to me, especially, you know, following routes along the old Silk Road through Central Asia. That was a big pull. Um, so, yeah, that's the reason I decided to, to head out to Malaysia. Yeah, I think, I think Europeans are very fortunate with that. Like for Canadians, like yes. we have to fly somewhere to start if we want to just get to other cultures because all of Canada, USA is basically the same culture. I mean, more or less, like the people are a bit different and some of our uh, behaviors and attitudes. Yeah, we're an English speaking culture. Yeah, we are very, yeah, we are very lucky. I've heard a lot of people say that, that as soon as we hop across the channel, you know, you have a huge landmass yeah. to be able to travel across. And it is, it is a real gift to be able to basically cycle straight into Asia. So yeah, definitely tried to make the most of it yeah it's pretty neat and yeah like you said it's a really good way to condition yourself is starting off in europe western europe and just taking the time to acclimatize and get your body used to cycling yeah 
And I went slow at the beginning, very slow. How slow is slow? <laughs> I think uh, slow is slow is pretty slow. I followed um, a lot of the Sustrans network, uh, mm-hmm. which is a big kind of psychopath network uh, through the UK. So I definitely didn't take the most direct route. Um, Sustrans network normally puts you on very quiet roads okay. and green lanes and canal towpaths, but also the quiet roads are normally the very hilly roads. So I think I was faced with like 25% gradient about three days after I set off from oh, home. Wow. So, you know, I can't cycle up that. I probably can't cycle up that now. So it was a very slow and a leisurely beginning. Um, Lots but, of swearing. You know, I didn't- <laughs> <laughs> lots of swearing well it was really cold when I set off as well um so yeah lots of being bundled up in warm layers and mm-hmm. um yeah lots of like shrugging of the shoulders and just pushing my bike up hills but it's okay you don't have to set off quickly so yeah it was a, a more and you weren't out to set any kind of world records so who cares <laughs> yeah exactly I think that was evident from the very beginning of my trip that world <laughs> records were not going to be mine for the taking so, what, uh, yeah. what kind of bike did you build up or use or buy or and um, so I have a surly long haul trucker mm-hmm. um so v brakes uh steel frame um and and yeah but racks rear racks and and for panniers uh on the on the rear and the front um so a very traditional setup mm-hmm. yeah what brand of panniers did you buy i had ortlieb for the rear panniers mm-hmm. um and then i had ultra for the front panniers so i think they're an english mate and it was just a canvas panniers mm-hmm. uh, which I put dry bags in and amazingly they lasted for the whole trip because they were not expensive at nice. all I think they cost me about 25 pounds for the pair um, and they made it all the way so yeah so they were all right actually. excellent yeah I think it's a tough one because a lot of people man like a lot of people ask and I get messages saying what kind of panniers should I buy and like they're like should I spend the money on oil leaves and I was like well I did, and a lot of other people do. So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But, I mean, there are so many brands out. And Ortlieb's and, like, um, what's what's that Canadian brand? Um, Anyways, there's there's another Canadian brand that's very expensive as well. And Caradis makes some really expensive ones. But I'm like, yeah. "Yeah." You can also get, like, Alpkit makes quite high-quality, good products. And I've read good reviews and heard good reviews about their panniers, too. So... Yeah, I really rate Outkit as a company. I've got some of their other kits. So their sleeping bag is Outkit. Oh, yeah. How is it? I've I've looked at it. Mm -hmm. Oh, so good. I think mine is the Pipe Dream or the Pipe Dream 600, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had it. I bought that in 2009, 2010. Um, and it's come on me uh, on the cycling trip. Uh, it's come with me on the cycling trip. And all of my other trips, I think they've, Alpicate has taken it in to replace the zip twice, I think. And they'll take it in for free and they'll just read it. So the customer service is excellent. I really, nice. I do rate them as a company. So it's yeah, very much really like, a, like I always support Osprey because Osprey has lifetime, no yeah. questions asked guarantees. They'll fix anything. Like my one backpack yeah. now, the that waterproof liner inside is starting to peel and flake. So once I move them, one of these days, I'll just send it in and get it warranted. Yeah, Osprey's another one. A lot of people have the Osprey bags, rucksacks on the Terraroa. Mm-hmm. Um, and their customer service is just 
is unbelievable. So good. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of wish I knew that before I set off because I probably would have gone with one of their bags. <laughs> <laughs> I have a, a small 38 liter for like, I bought it for ultra, ultra light stuff. And, uh, yeah. But I don't think yeah. you could do like the Terroir with a 38 liter. You probably need something a little bit bigger to carry food and all oh, that. Oh, I know. Somebody probably could. The ultralight minimalist, minimalists amongst us, but I'm not sure it would well, be me. Maybe I could then. <laughs> um, <laughs> how did you decide um, what kind of bike to buy? Like, did you just go with the Surly because tried and tested and good reviews? Or was there contention between different brands and where you were deeply thinking about it? Um. There was quite a lot of internet research. And to be honest, I can't even remember what other bikes I would have been looking at. Um, but the Surly just kept coming up time and time again mm-hmm. um, as a bike that if you can't afford a full-on expedition-type bike, then this is a really good, solid alternative. I knew I wanted steel frame. I think that's what a lot of people yeah. go for uh, over aluminium, but it's not essential, but it is you know, what a lot of people choose. Um, and there was also a Surly stockist uh, in in Aviemore, which is only a, you know it's about 40 minute drive away from where oh, I live okay. so I was able to go and, and have a look at it and chat through um, purchasing it with the, the guy who eventually built it for me so that was a real pull because I knew that I was going to be able to give it a try out before I bought it mm-hmm. that's actually really good yeah and that's a good point like Surly they are expensive bikes they're high quality they're good but there are expedition bikes that are even more expensive. And so they're, yeah. they're a really great upper middle or lower top of the line within price guys, like pricing. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I know that it's not essential to go with a, you know, a shiny brand new bike. And there are people that tour with all kinds of different bikes and, and do so with, with absolute success as well. Mm-hmm. But I think because I knew I wasn't going to be so strong in the kind of mechanical side of things like I can I can fix things but you know in terms of taking my bike completely apart if something went wrong then there's a chance that I might struggle with that in certain you know certain areas so I wanted a bike that I knew was going to be a real workhorse and really reliable and so the kind of the upper end of the price bracket in that kind of off the peg bike was what I went for. Mm-hmm. Nice. On to the technical stuff. Um, gear inches, did you figure it out? <laughs> no, <laughs> no idea. I had gears, two wheels and two pedals. <laughs> <laughs> Just for perspective, she asked me not to ask crazy technical questions. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. I was like, I can tell you the brand of my bike and that it goes and that's probably about it. It's got gears, but that's the, uh, the height of my uh, technical knowledge. <laughs> That's ah, right. No, nobody needs to know all those things unless you need to know, I guess. But um, yeah, gee. Does your, <laughs> I'm not a bike mechanic. I think Surly's typically, uh, is it a 700C wheel or 26 inch? Like, I, think I have 26 you inch. Have 26s, yeah. Yes? Yeah, it's more just more common. So easier to find parts or spares everywhere in the world. Yeah, exactly. The wheels can be a bit, you know, a little bit stronger as Mm -hmm. well. So I went for 26 just because I wanted the most basic, easy to fix bike. And to be honest, the, you know, the 700cc would have been easy, uh, just as easy to fix where I was going as well. So yeah, I think that nowadays, I don't think 700c is a 
difficult thing to find tires or tubes for. Yeah. I think it's pretty, exactly. pretty standard. Let's talk about clothing and packing. Uh, what did you pack? Yeah. Did you, do you feel like you overpacked or do you feel like you're right in the middle there somewhere? Oh, I probably am kind of middle to upper in terms of what I um, pack. Um, mostly because I knew that I'd be cycling through the seasons. So yeah. when you're cycling for just longer than a year, you know, you probably know that at some point you are going to hit kind of winter time or autumn winter time. Um, so when I set off from my house in March, I'd actually had to delay my departure for about a week. I was always going to leave on the 1st of March and I actually left on the, on the 7th mm-hmm. because we had this Siberian front uh, or these winds from Siberia coming over and it made it so cold and snowy and people were snowed in all across the UK. Oh, wow. and I was like, I don't think it's so, uh, I don't think it's very good for me to be leaving at this point. Um, so yeah, so I had to wait until the roads had cleared uh, from the snow before I set off, but it was still about minus five at night. Um, so I set off with all of my winter kit and, um, yeah and then and then I carried on with it so there were times in Turkey where it was about 35 degrees beautiful sunny weather and I've still got a minus 10 sleeping bag okay you never sent anything home (laughs) I never sent anything home because I knew that I was going to need it kind of in Tajikistan and parts of China so there there definitely would have been the possibility to post it home and then get it reposted out to me to meet me along the road uh, or get it posted home and then buy all of those additional things but it yeah it felt mm-hmm. like I could by that time I was so used to cycling with it that I just thought I'd carry on that's yeah, right so because a lot of it. a lot of cyclists they try to get into down towards the southeast asia part by the time winter's coming but you actually stayed up in China for quite a while and uh that's right yeah, yeah. so I was in kind of Tajikistan from October or the end of September, October, and then I only got out of China kind of middle of December. So it's definite, definite winter feeling. Why did you decide to start in March? I mean, I think a lot of the bike tours do start later. They start probably like June, I'm guessing. Um, March seems to be quite early for just weather-wise. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, um, it worked for me because of timings at work, um, okay. because that's kind of before the season starts. So in the summer season, obviously, that's our busiest time at work. And I didn't want to be stepping out of the season or trying to hand over the reins to somebody else mm-hmm. within that time. Um, so it meant that we could recruit somebody um, and and they could have the whole season uh, and have a good run at it. Um, I also knew that I was going to be setting off, as I've said, probably quite slowly um, because just for the fact that I was just getting used to life on the road. Also, I didn't take the most direct route through Europe. So I went down the west coast of France and then out through across the mountains in the centre of France and then through Switzerland and then on into Germany. So had I um, crossed the channel and then gone direct to join the Danube route which is the one that I cycled along then I probably could have knocked off probably I don't know maybe about a month or so um but yeah I just wanted to see some other places on my way across Europe fantastic um, I think so, you're the first person I've interviewed that's not just gone straight to the Danube <laughs> oh really 
you know, well, it's because I really wanted to cycle through Switzerland because I really wanted to get up to Grindelwald and go and see the north face of the Eiger because it's a place that I've read about and I know a lot of the history of climbing mm-hmm. ascents. And I was like, well, while I'm on my bicycle and I'm free to go and do go and cycle wherever I want to, um, I thought I'd go and have a look at that. So, um, yeah, it was a great decision. I really loved cycling through Switzerland. It's and did you go very- do some climbing there too or hiking? And no, a bit of bit of hiking, mm-hmm. yeah, a bit of hiking around Grindelwald, which was really beautiful. Um, but yeah, ma- mainly just still on the on the bicycle. But the warm showers community in Switzerland is really is it, uh, huh? amazing. So I stayed with a lot of people. It's my some of my first experiences with warm showers, which was yeah a fantastic experience. So I have some happy happy memories of Switzerland. Oh, very good. And you, um, your family's from the northeast of England, right? And then you cycled all the way. What was your route through England? I know you mentioned the the system of trails that you took or paths, roads. That's right. Yeah. So, um, so I was on the the Sustrans network. So from uh, from Durham, I headed down south through kind of the North Pennines, mm-hmm. and then down into the Yorkshire Dales, um, which is is where you get the very hilly 25% gradients is some of the routes are where the Tour de Yorkshire go so it's okay. quite hilly um and then down kind of through the Peak District to Derbyshire from Derbyshire uh then towards Birmingham and then out towards Gloucester and across Glastonbury uh down to Portsmouth so yeah a bit of a wiggly route through but taken in some some really beautiful kind of rural areas so really really nice cycling on quiet roads oh nice I just pulled up a map of this network there are a lot of cycle paths Mm. and networks throughout the UK they are the perfect start to planning out um a route away from home because they're all signposted as well so you have people blue sustrans uh, cycle network signposts and they're all numbered so it does mean to start with that navigation is quite easy because you're just following the signposts and and like i say they're they always take you on the on the quieter roads or little green lanes away Mm -hmm. from traffic so it's a really valuable network that we've got and had you cycled or traveled much of the uk prior to this bike ride so i traveled uh quite a lot in the uk you know as kids we were always on holiday mm-hmm. and i definitely know certain areas of the uk very well like the lake districts the yorkshire dales i used to live down in cornwall so i know the southwest quite well as well um so it's it's quite interesting then using the bicycle obviously in a in a linear fashion to mm-hmm. link up all the places that you know with areas that you don't know so well and that's the joy of cycling i suppose from a to b um is that you go and, and find out all these little extra nooks and crannies that you never knew existed and uh-huh. um, so yeah it was it's really good fun yeah. i liked it a lot did you take a lot of rest days while riding or was it just um the occasional one or how did you plan your rest yeah, I'm not so good at rest days, if I'm honest. There were the occasional one, uh, occasional ones if I was staying in a campsite or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I'm a massive advocate for wild camping. Um, so it's not so easy to have a rest day if you're, if you're wild camping. Um, but yeah, I, I, again, I used, uh, warm showers a little bit and some campsites as well. So just occasionally, like once every 10 days or, once every week, something like that, I'd yeah. have a have a day off. Yeah. Oh, nice. 
Other than uh, Switzerland, what were some of the other highlights of cycling in Europe? Um, so some of the highlights, or I suppose, um, legitimately eating lots and lots of delicious local food is always an absolute highlight of being on a bike trip. Mm-hmm. Um, so in France, visiting, um, you know, a patisserie daily was part of my uh, definite daily routine. Uh, also, in the first time and the in France, of wine. I got yeah. <laughs> You can carry it on a bike. Again, it's perfectly legitimate. <laughs> um, so in France, I was um, randomly invited for the first time to go in and stay with a family for the night. They saw me putting up my tent oh, wow. nice. on a canal towpath. Um, and yeah, they just came over and they were interested in what I was doing and they just invited me to, to go and stay with them for the evening, which was lovely. And that, so that was my first experience of being hosted by, by random people, which mm-hmm. was, is obviously something that then continued for the rest of the bike trip, as I'm sure lots of other uh, bike tourists will tell you as well. Um, also, once I was on the Danube route, I met several cyclists because uh, a lot of people use that that rivers route um to head out east quite quickly um so you meet a lot of people who are cycling across asia um, mm-hmm. on that route so quite a few of them um i kept in touch with for the rest of their journeys as well um so one chat was cycling from bath to bangkok um and yeah another couple were also cycling down to singapore so it was quite nice to be able to to track them as well um another amazing highlight was uh finally uh cycling into Budapest, which was, it yeah. felt like a real achievement to go and uh, and cycle in and, and then walk around and be a tourist and see all these amazing Yeah, I think Budapest things. has this like, this little thing to it that makes you really feel like you've now in Eastern Europe, you know, like more so yes. than some of the other countries. For sure. And it's so beautiful. Um, and there's, you know, so much to see and get involved in mm-hmm. and experience that, yeah, it felt like... Um, you know, I had actually made a, an achievement on my bike, which was a really nice feeling. Yeah. And I think with your route, when you, cause you went down the west coast of France and then cut across through the mountains to Switzerland, I think this probably ate up just enough time. So by the time you got to the Danube, it was like the other bike tours were now starting too, right? So you had a chance yeah. of meeting more people. Very true. Yeah, very true. And it's a real, the Danube route is a real mixture of people who are just out on their holidays and Mm -hmm. maybe get their bags shipped for them every day. Uh, People that are just out for a weekend or, or long distance um, folk. So you can always see the long distance folks. Often they're the four pannier people, whereas the other ones just have two panniers at the back. (laughs) So the four pannier people are normally the people who are going a long way. That makes sense. (laughs) Um, what was, were there any lowlights to cycling in Europe? Um, any lowlights? It was a little bit of a challenge in the first few weeks because there was a lot of rain in France. And, uh, and again, that's and it was just... Cold, early um, season too, so it's cold. Early season, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm from Britain and the rain is what we cope 
quite well with. So, <laughs> but it did mean that a lot of the paths were flooded, um, and I was following canal towpaths for quite a while, and all the canals had uh, had flooded over. So there was quite a lot of diversions and navigating and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but to be honest, I was just finding my feet through Europe. So, um, yeah, just just getting through and 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 making sure that I was looking after myself and having a good time and not spending too long on the bike and mm-hmm. getting off and chatting to people. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Definitely really enjoyed cycling through um, through Europe. Excellent. What was it like to cycle into Istanbul? Oh, an experience. <laughs> Definitely an experience. Um, so I chose to cycle in from the north, so mm-hmm. from the Black Sea, and then come south along the Bosphorus uh, because I had read online that that was the, uh, the slightly quieter route in. There is another route that you can come in along the, I think it's the D100 that takes you direct from west to east into Istanbul but it's meant to be very busy so I thought I'd go for the the easier route Um, and so cycling along the Bosphorus it was a beautiful day the traffic was absolutely fine and I vividly remember thinking oh I have made the best decision ever and this is going so well Um, and then unfortunately I cycled um, past a parked car just as the driver was opening his door Um, and yeah it clipped me I went into the middle of the road so I was sprawled out in a heat with my bike on top of me Um, but fortunately because it was Turkey within about two seconds I had lots of people rush out into the middle of the road and help me up and pick up my bike and um, so it was all fine I was fine I think the driver was more upset than I was Um, so it was absolutely fine but just absolutely it's just one of those things that it can happen when you're on a bicycle Um, and and from there, um, they made me go to the medical center and have a lot of iodine oh. rubbed into the little grazes on my knees, which was fun. Um, and <sighs> then, yeah, and then I carried on cycling into the center. So, yeah, so it was it was fine. It's definitely the easier route if anybody is thinking about cycling into um, Istanbul. So that kind of takes you up route. towards the airport and then down to, from the north into the city? Exactly that, yeah. So there's so there's a one major road that basically runs along the Bosporus all the way into the centre of Istanbul. And once you get on that road, you just keep following the Bosporus. So navigation is super easy. Um, just don't go too close to the parked cars and you'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, I, that happens and it sucks. And, you know, I think we're all guilty of it too as car drivers to like just open our doors sometimes, you know, so... For sure, yeah, absolutely. But at least you're in a country like Turkey. Some places people just look at you like you're some imbecile. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Everybody was super lovely, really, really kind. Um, and I, yeah, I do remember thinking that I've cycled all the way to Istanbul. And if that's the only thing that's happened um, that's not particularly nice, then I, I think I was doing quite well by that point. Yeah, I'd say so. Um how was the city and how much time did you spend there? Oh, the city, Istanbul is is unbelievable. And, and anyone that's going to, to Turkey, I would highly recommend going. I stayed there for about six days. Um, I was hosted by a really amazing um, chap that I met from Warm Showers. Okay. Um, and um, he 
oh, he took it upon himself to be my tour guide in his free time, which was so kind. Um, so we went to, you know, the Hagia Sophia, the Blue Mosque, mm-hmm. all the um, traditional shops and markets, all these indoor markets, saw some beautiful architecture. Like the big bazaars and, and stuff? In, exactly that, yeah. And then um, while he was at work, I took myself off to go and explore kind of all the little tiny little streets and and get lost in the the middle of Istanbul which was amazing it's really bustling and vibrant and there's a certain energy to Istanbul that I just really loved and so yeah I would definitely recommend that that anyone goes oh nice what's uh what's tell us about Turkish hospitality Oh, it's it's unbelievable. Um, I'd read so much about Turkish hospitality um, from people's blogs and mm-hmm. things like that, but it's it's just off the chart when you experience it in real life. Um, so when I crossed the border from Bulgaria into Turkey, I I was always accepting invitations um, to go and have chai or tea chai mm-hmm. um, with people. And it transpired that I'd been in Turkey for about a week and I'd actually hardly cycled anywhere because if you sit down with people and you're drinking chai, you know, they're, they'll probably invite you for lunch and then they might invite their friends and then you might get an offer of somewhere to stay that evening. Um, so I just wasn't really cycling very far very fast. Okay. Um, so I was like, okay, I really have to, you know, start not accepting every invitation that comes my way Mm -hmm. um, because you get offered so much hospitality. I mean, people stop at the side of the road and just want a chat or they want to give you something and they want to host you or they want to introduce you to their family or or just have a photograph with you very often. And so it's, it's, yeah, definitely part of their nature to be really inquisitive and, and, and really just want to find out who you are. So it's, yeah, if you like hospitality, Turkey is definitely the place to go. I would absolutely go back for sure. um, Because there's there's so much to see there as well. Yeah, I kind of, I I do want, I so want to go there one day and cycle through Turkey. And, um, it always comes up in interviews of pretty much anybody who's been through Turkey, how wonderful it is. And I can kind of get yeah. it because I've been to Iran and Iran, I think, is very yeah. similar in how hospitable they are. Um, I've never cycled yeah. through Iran, so I can only imagine how much more hospitable it could be because when you're cycling, people yeah. like even have bigger affinity to help you. So For sure. One day, I yeah, one day, I hope that I can cycle through Iran. I've heard so many yeah, amazing things Hopefully the politics improve and uh, we'll see. Yeah, we all keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> Where else did you go in Turkey? Um, so from Istanbul, I cycled uh, east, so to the south of Ankara to Cappadocia, mm-hmm. uh, which is where the kind of amazing geological landscape yeah. is and all the hot air balloons go. You see beautiful photographs. Um, from there to Erzincan and Ezrum. Um, and then eventually made my way to a really small little border crossing near Lake Childer. Um, so it's a tiny little border post with um, that borders Georgia. Okay. And how long did you spend in total in um, in Turkey? Uh, I think I spent about six weeks all in all. 
yeah nice. six weeks cycling through um because it's it's a yeah it's a big definitely a big country the amazing thing about turkey is that you can cycle on their on their major highways and they often have a nice big broad yes. uh, hard shoulder so a reservation lane um which means that if you need to make up some miles you can get on there the asphalt is really mm-hmm. good and then if you want to take little detours on gravel roads which are really easily found in turkey then you can come off and do little detours so you can really make your journey as as challenging or as easy and and quick and slow as you like oh that's amazing because yeah malaysia was the same you could ride on the expressways and any any roads were allowed on by motorbikes scooters and bicycles and yeah and you know their shoulders are so wide and they're generally very clean like i mean if there was a broken car accident there's glass yeah you had to be watching but like generally you could see quite far ahead you could see oh there's some glass coming up so you just take easy and make sure you kind of swerve around the glass and uh it was so nice yeah just for smooth riding good quality highways yeah oh i know and the big sweeping down hills that go on Mm -hmm. for miles on good tarmac you can get some yeah you can get some good speed up there (laughs) yeah so you went to georgia next and i assume this is where you sorted out visas and you spent a bit of time here that's right. Yeah. So Georgia um, is the the place where I picked up my Chinese visa, my visa for China. Um, and yeah, that's it's in the future. Georgia is definitely a country that I want to return to because the principal focus at that point was getting to Tbilisi mm-hmm. um, because there was a quite a big group of other cycle tour tourists at that point other people on a cycle tour um that were collecting their or applying for their chinese visa um so really i was making a beeline to tbilisi to go and meet up with them and talk through the ins and outs of of how to get a chinese visa and what are the ins and outs Um, because i know it is quite challenging but georgia seems to be the place to get it done it is, yeah. In terms of, um, yeah, countries to the west of China, it's the last chance um, that you have um, to pick up uh, a Chinese visa there. Um, the trick, uh, well, I I got a visa. So my trick, whether it's the right way to go, yeah. I'm really not sure. So this isn't necessarily advice for everybody. Um, but I was a little bit sparing with the truth um, because... No, in order to you get lied. A, yeah, <laughs> a, a lie, I think is yeah, maybe a little bit. It, definitely, I definitely lied in my visa application. <laughs> um, so, in order to get a visa, you have to say that you are a resident of uh, a resident in Georgia, which isn't too hard because you get we get twelve months uh, visa free. So you can technically say that you're living there. Um, and you have to come up with an address, which I just found an address off Google Maps. And um, we basically came up with a, a, a plan um, to say that we were going on holiday to China and flying from Tbilisi to Beijing. And we came up with a, a fake itinerary, um, hotel bookings, which we then cancelled um, and and. Yeah, various. Oh, and flights as well. That was the other thing, which we then cancelled as well. Um, You also, or we also needed a a letter of employment. So fortunately, my old employer was happy to supply me with a letter that it was 
yeah, a little bit uh, incorrect as well. Um, <laughs> and then you waltz into an embassy with a nice smiley face wearing your best non-cycle touring clothes. Um, and yeah, you answer a few questions about why you want to go and then you keep your fingers crossed. Um, the trouble is some people do get refused for a whole host of reasons. Okay. Sometimes it isn't very clear why. So some people have said that they are on a bike trip uh, and have given the itinerary of, of their bicycle trip. Um, and some have got accepted and then some have got refused. So wow. that is it's a little bit of a gray area, actually, with what's the correct way to go about it. Um, some people go with a letter of employment and some people don't and they still get accepted. So it's it's really, I think it depends who's on the desk or how many people they've accepted that day or that month as to how lucky or not you might be. Um, everybody that I knew that put in a request mm -hmm. um, got accepted, maybe not the first time, but you have the opportunity to give your documents in again. They just hand them all back to you if you've been refused and then tell you when to come back with the correct documents. You do get that as an option, oh, wow. okay. um, which is quite nice. Um, if you get something slightly uh, wrong, then you can have another go. Mm -hmm. um, so I applied for two times 90 days and the lady said that that was probably going to be too long and that she could give me uh, two times 60 days, which I accepted at that point. So that's a 60 so. day visa that you can extend for 60? Exactly. So it's 60 days. So it's a multiple entry visa. So you can have 60 days and then you would have to exit the country in order to return and get a further 60 days. Okay. Interesting. And I, I think going to Hong Kong is an option for that exit. Quote, it unquote. is. Yeah, that's an option for sure. Um, a lot of people exit into Vietnam and then re-enter as well. Okay. Um, so there are various different ways that you can, yeah, exit and then re-enter. But I just did, I cycled for 56 days uh, and then exited into Laos at that point and then didn't return. So I didn't use the second portion. Okay. Nice. And how much time did you spend in Georgia sorting all this out? Um, I think it took us about two days to put it all together um, and in various cafes using the Wi-Fi. Um, and then we applied, um, yeah, on the third day. And then I think you have to wait for a week before you return. So that week was quite nice to have some pressure-free time to go and explore the city and um, yeah, spend time with lots of different people that I've met on the bicycle. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was applying for my visa with Tim and Linda, who I think that you have interviewed uh -huh, sure. um, in a previous podcast. So I know them quite well as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, there was a, a good a good gang of us uh, in Tbilisi. So it was a good time. And from there, I assume you cycled basically to Baku and took the boat. Exactly that. Yeah. How was Azerbaijan? So, Azerbaijan was great. Um, yeah, it's it was a, a really fantastic country to cycle through. Um, we were we cycled uh, to the north of the country, so right underneath the um, uh, the Caucasus Mountains. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I was cycling with Tim and Linda, um, a, a girl called Anna from Germany, and Jean Michel from France. So we had a little gang of us, which was really nice. So a really nice uh, group dynamic um so lots of 
wild camping and yeah fun on the roads and meeting lots of really amazing people and Azerbaijan is a really really fantastic country to go and cycle in and Baku is what a city Um, it's a an architect's dream I think anything goes in Baku in terms of architecture so yeah it's really fun to go and have a look around oh wow it's interesting how very few bike tours make it to Armenia although it's right there like so many people you know they have that goal and they're like oh Georgia visas Azerbaijan boat and yeah and they just kind of miss Armenia People get very focused around the kind of Georgia, Azerbaijan area. The reason that I didn't go is because time was really ticking in terms of the seasons for me. Um, So it very much felt like there was a little bit of pressure Mm -hmm. to, to get through Uzbekistan and get into Tajikistan and, and over the big mountain passes. So it was always in the back of my mind, really from really from Turkey onwards, that not that I needed to be pushing on, but that, you know, I, I needed to be a little bit more focused yeah. in, in, and, in and reaching I, the And I feel that once you have your visas in hand too, everybody's like, all their mind is thinking is like Central Asia, like here it comes, you know? So they, they're kind of focused. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, I was really lucky in that when I received my visa for China, I had a, a six month window of entry. So actually, the, the pressure to get into China wasn't there. It was just simply to do with the seasons. And some people only get a three month window of entry, which can be a, you know, can be a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, tight, um, especially if something happen to go wrong within the rest of Central Asia. Um, but yeah, I only had a six month, which was quite good okay. in terms of taking the pressure off of that. And um, when, with, with regards to the cargo ship, I believe you spent a few days just like bobbing around out in the sea waiting for the weather to improve or something? That's right, yeah. So the cargo ship is a, um, it's very interesting in that there's no timetable. So the boats just go sporadically um maybe when they have enough cargo Mm -hmm. to fill up a boat or if there's a good weather window um then they'll head off the information that's available uh, to to people like us uh who are buying tickets for foot passages is very limited um so you just have to arrive at the place where you buy tickets um and you just have to to wait basically until um you get the information. I mean, I say wait, but it is, it's very persistent waiting and mm-hmm. you have to be very adamant that you want your ticket. And then eventually after you, they think that you have been persistent enough, you will get a ticket. And then, yeah, we all boarded um, and eventually we got on the boat uh, and then we were anchored uh, off Baku for about two or three days, I think, oh, wow. just waiting for the weather. Yeah, just waiting until the weather got better. And then we set off to Alat in, in Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, definitely. It was a bit like, um, yeah, we tried to picture it like it was a, a, a cruise, but a very, very rustic cruise with not much choice of food. Um, but it was absolutely fine. Um, you know, we had a nice time, shared a cabin with, again, with Tim and Linda. So, um, yeah, it was, it was no hardship. It was quite enjoyable being with all the, um, the lorry drivers from Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan who were all having a, a wonderful time on the boat. <laughs> Getting drunk and. <laughs> 
Exactly that. Yeah. yeah. There was a lot of alcohol flowing from, from various people. Yeah. I used to live in Russia, so I know exactly what that's like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you'll know it well. Yeah. Uh, what was it like in, I mean, being in the stands all of a sudden or Central Asia? Yeah. I mean, instantly culturally very, very different. Um, so to start with, you're going through, uh, the, the, the desert essentially mm-hmm. in, in Kazakhstan and then the west of Uzbekistan. Um, and, and that's unlike any other cycling that I think I, I did, um, throughout the whole trip. Um, so it's, it's very, it, te- it really tests your motivational stamina. Yeah. Um, because after cycling through the desert for three, four, five days, you know, when you close your eyes, you know that if you reopen them in about two hours, it would be exactly the same scenery. <laughs> um, Maybe one bush. sand dune has moved slightly. But. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That a bush, you know, a scrubby bush might have just moved. And um, so that comes with its challenging uh, challenges. And a lot of people do get the train through that section. I've heard that, yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm really glad that I didn't because I, I did really enjoy it because it's just about taking through the miles and 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 getting on and the camping is exceptional because the stars are unlike anything I think I've seen before um I actually had a little stargazing app on my phone mm-hmm. um so yeah so every night I would just have a look at all of the different constellations and the Milky Way is so bright oh, um wow. so in terms of that you know if you yeah if you love wild camping you can come anywhere because you know it's it's all desert yeah. you can just pull your bike off the side of the road pop up your tent and you're fine uh, yeah and um, I think when it comes to stars I think you're like what that's one thing where Canadians really luck out is I mean we have a pretty small population in a huge country and you know yeah true I could go to my parents house and if we have the outside lights off and I go outside with the dog at night or something I can't even see one foot in front of my face if it's cloudy, you know, like, there's nothing. It's just yeah. pitch black. There's no light pollution. But, you know, wow. most people from Europe and stuff, I mean, definitely light pollution is just a, it's a part of life and you don't even notice it. You know, it's just it's just it there. It is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is. It's a sad, it is really a sad fact that, you know, you go to Uzbekistan and then your jaw drops because of the stars that should be able to see everywhere. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's. Yeah, it's a really amazing place. And, and then when you get to um, Bukhara uh, and Samarkand, you know, these are the old kind of historic uh, mm-hmm. Silk Road um, cities that are, yeah, again, amazing to look around. The architecture is just out of this world. So, so yeah, I would highly recommend Uzbekistan. And to start with, it wasn't really a country that I knew much about. Um, it was really a country to allow me really to get to the Pamir Mountains. Yeah. So it just felt like a bit of a transit country. But actually now it's one of my favorite countries that oh, I cycled really? through. I met so many really, really lovely, generous people. Like if you sit at the side of the road, somebody will stop and um, you know, bring a bring a watermelon is one example. Mm-hmm. And then um, you know, a lady got off a bus and she only had a big packet of a big multi-pack of toilet rolls and so she panicked a little bit and just handed me one because it's all she had to give to me and I was like oh no you don't like you don't need to give me anything but it's it's such a generous spirit and 
um, tourism is really increasing and you know the, yeah. the people who live there were were super nice I got hosted a good several times um, with really lovely families did you pick so, up much yeah. Russian or any other local dialects Oh, I, I try. Russian is probably the one, the go-to one. Um, yeah, so just get you by everywhere. Very, exactly. Yeah, it's just, it's about getting, getting by. Um, a lot of the younger kids, a lot of the younger children do actually uh, speak quite a bit of English. So you can communicate with them. Yeah, it's kind of starting to be their third language. And in Tajikistan, it's now their uh, kind of their, their main second language. So, yeah, a lot of the children learn it at school. Oh, very cool. What was your route through the Pamir Highway or mountains? Um, so... So from Dushanbe, uh, there are there are two routes really to um, a place called Kalaikum. Uh, you can either take the northern route, uh, which is a bit shorter but much rougher and much more mountainous, or the southern route. And I opted to take the southern route there. And they rejoin at a place called Kulob. Uh, oh no, sorry, they rejoin at, at Kalaikum. Sorry. Okay. Um, yeah. And then from there, it splits again. So um, from Horog, it splits again. So you oh, can okay. either follow the, the Pame Highway. And then I opted to do the, the Wakan Valley route, which drops a little bit further south of Horog and then continues along the Panj River, which is the border between Afghanistan and, and Tajikistan. So that's, I would say, more remote, um, less paved um, and yeah, a little bit wilder than the traditional Pame Highway. Oh, nice. And how was it? Oh, amazing. Tajikistan, I would say, is one of my favorite countries. Um, I've heard this from a because, few people. <laughs> yeah, the landscape is just, it's massive and it's so, it feels so wide um, and wild and, and the mountains are so beautiful. Um, and yeah, you can really test yourself because you start to deal with, uh, altitude which is is not something that I'd experienced on on the rest of my trip so that's um yeah that's kind of a, a good thing to sit alongside the, the the daily rhythms of cycling but yeah it's it's phenomenally beautiful and you can see why a lot of cyclists are, are, are starting to go mm -hmm. there for sure and how did you find the altitude did your body handle it quite well yeah, uh, yeah, really well. I mean, I'm not going to say it wasn't hard. Um, so yeah, Akbaital is the, the the highest pass that you go over. So it's over 4,000 meters. So, you know, that's, it takes a bit out of you to get up there. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, again, I just took it quite slowly and, and just listened to my body and kept really well hydrated and I was absolutely fine. Um, so yeah, yeah really it was amazing yeah, it was testing but really good how cold did it get at nighttime because you did mention that you were getting there a little bit later in the season yeah and this and the 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 cold weather came in about two weeks earlier um, than it normally does and um, so i was actually unfortunately kind of hit that spell of, of cold winter good weather. thing you had your outfit sleeping bag yeah good old outkit kept me alive <laughs> at night um Hashtag. so it <laughs> yeah, I'll get saved my life. Um, so I probably, 
or a conservative minus 10, um, maybe just a couple of degrees colder at night. It never really got above zero for Mm -hmm. the last few days, um, even in the day. Even though it was quite sunny, it was still really very cold. Um, So I would just go to sleep with all my layers on um, with a, a... full tummy of hot food to try and keep me warm through the night um, and I'd also bought some hard plastic water bottles mm-hmm. so I'd put warm water in all of those make sure they were really well tightened and then put them in my coat and down at the bottom of my sleeping bag Good just idea. so that I could get off to sleep nice and warm and then once you're warm in your tent and sleeping bag then you know you can stay warm pretty much all night you don't get out no matter how bad you need to go pee you just stay in that tent and you just (laughs) hold it (laughs) absolutely not yeah exactly you learn very quickly that getting out for a wee is a very (laughs) bad idea (laughs) so yeah you stay in that tent (laughs) um so you are you did you go to osh at all before you went into china yes i did you did um So I went to Osh because I had had some wheels um, hand built for me in uh, the UK and I had had them shipped out to to, Yeah, I know. Well, (laughs) not. I just, yeah, I just decided that I needed them. Unfortunately, my rims had had worn through um, and I'd had very poor quality ones put on in Tbilisi, which I had then proceeded to... um, very much test them out in the Wakan Valley. Yeah. It's all gravel and loose sand. And I just decided that it probably wasn't such a good idea to continue on them. So I, I basically, I went to, to Osh to go and collect these wheels oh, that were okay. waiting for me. Um, so yeah, cycled all the way down, um, all the way down from Saritash to Osh. Um, and then, yeah, and then back out, back, back up to Saritash and mm-hmm. then out into China. Okay. And then when you, you, you took a, you cycled as far as Kashgar and then took a train, did you? Or? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I, yeah. So I crossed over the border and then cycled down into Kashgar, past all of the untold number of checkpoints. Yeah. Um, got a police escort for the last oh. 30 kilometers into the city, which was, um, yeah, that was a very much a new experience. You're not allowed to stop. Um, and or consult a map or anything like that so you know they keep behind you and, and keep you moving um and and yeah got an what's right the reason for that i there's quite a lot of tension um between the um, uyghurs and it, like exactly minorities? Yeah. in the uyghur community yeah in xinjiang and i think because there had been uh, a tv program um on BBC about uh, what was going on there quite recently. I think mm-hmm. they were very much aware of people going into the community and maybe asking too many questions. And they just didn't want you getting off your bike and, and talking to any Uyghur people. Okay. Um, so we were, yeah, it was very much like you will keep going and we will take you uh, to the, the, the door of the place that you're staying in. Wow. Um, so it felt very quite restricted and and very controlled once you're in the center of Kashgar um it's fine you can pretty much you know you can you can go anywhere but because they keep the Uyghurs out of the center exactly yeah Yeah. and so it's the 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 Uyghur that uh, have these identity cards so they're the ones that are getting stopped all the time not the 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 Han Chinese yeah Yeah, I had um I had a I had a couch surfer in Malaysia. Man, this is way back in 2012 or 13. 
and uh, he was Uyghur Chinese. And talk about an intelligent guy. I mean, this guy spoke perfect English, Chinese, of course, perfect Russian. And because of the area he was in, he could speak Kyrgyzstani and Tajikistani. And like, he was just so educated and smart. And then like we talked about, you know, the, the cultural differences, like the problems and within his region. And he was just like, yeah, there's nothing. There's no hope there. Like it's just. And he had cycled towards so much. And um, last I saw, I think he married a girl in Turkey. But um, I've lost touch. I should reach out and try to find him again. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool yeah, guy. Is, His name was Misha. A very Russian name. Misha. Ah. And, uh, <laughs> but Chinese. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it was very cool. Yeah, it is. It, it's something that I think maybe kind of people who don't travel so much really don't know that much about mm-hmm. um but yeah it's it's something that is starting to come to the forefront it's starting to be reported in the news so i can only hope with that kind of continual um investigation of what's going on there then it starts to to trickle down into ev- people's everyday knowledge and then mm-hmm. maybe that pressure will do something about it yeah and since that time in 2012 i mean that was early days nothing like i don't think the government was doing or maybe they were doing some of the stuff they're doing now but you just didn't know because it was even small scale at that time yeah yeah yeah. how was china what was uh what were some of the great things about it what did you like Uh, most china is uh again china is such a vast country it's really difficult to be able to it's really difficult to be able to think of it as 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 just one country like every province really feels like a different country oh really yeah so i chose to get the train from kashgar to lanjo mm-hmm. uh, which is in gansu province um principally because i only had this 60 day visa um and so i wouldn't have been able to cycle that whole distance um and then i chose from lanjo to head fairly kind of west and south mm-hmm. um so for a time i was right up on the tibetan plateau did you go to Not xian Tibet, obviously um uh no i didn't um but i went to uh, lebrang and mm-hmm. uh, lijang dali jinghong and then down into laos from there okay um but i was following these tiny little roads along rivers um with really big um kind of tibetan culture so the old tibetan block houses right sat right up on the riverbanks and oh, wow. monasteries and prayer flags everywhere and it was just um you know, it's not the China that you see when you think of, you know, Beijing and these big cities. It's very rural, tiny little villages. Um, and yeah, really, really beautiful. I was, I was quite pleased with the route that I had randomly taken. Um, and yeah, it did mean that. So I wild camp predominantly, um, for the duration. Um, so it was uh, it was easier at that point to find you know really nice little mm-hmm. camping spots, especially down by the rivers. I had I had read recently to somebody on one of the Facebook groups and stuff, and somebody was asking about China, and somebody mentioned said, "Don't forget, like in China, once you're a little bit west, it's not really yes. it doesn't feel like a populated country. I mean, when cities are big and populated, but as soon as you get outside the cities, it's very rural, you know." Very rural, yeah, and and huge, big, wide open spaces, um, yeah, especially uh, in that western side. Lots of different 
uh, ethnic minority groups as well. So really interesting to go and, and travel around. Um, so yeah, I would, I would highly recommend kind of that, that Western edge for anybody who's, who's cycle touring. It was, it was a really. How is the food in China? Time for a quick commercial break to tell you about some of the awesome companies partnered up with Bikepack Adventures. Bikepack Adventures is proud to be partnered with Redshift Sports. I've been using their shock stop suspension system and kitchen sink handlebar system for the past several years and can attest to the difference they make when out on rides. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience. Use the discount code BPA15 to get 15% off your purchase. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag-making business for quite some time. Having used a race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the code BPA10 to save 10% off your order. I've been fortunate to partner up with Panorama Cycles for winter 2023, and I've been testing out the Panorama Shikshoks carbon fat bike. Coming in at 27.5 pounds with studdable tires, XT drivetrain, and hydraulic brakes, this machine will keep you on the bike for the entire winter. Use the code BPA15 to save 15% off the 2023 Shikshoks carbon fat bike. Now, back to the show. Um, the food, if it was lots of noodle soups. So I'm vegetarian. Oh, are you? Um, okay. Which isn't, yeah, My apologies. It's not always, no, so. <laughs> it's not, yeah, I'm so sorry about that. Um, <laughs> it's not always so easy. Um, yeah. I think it became easier down in, in Yunnan because they have um, the big fridges that you can point at. Mm-hmm. Um, so then basically you're just creating your own dishes, which was um, quite good fun. You just oh. put the things that you want and then they make it for you. Um, so once you, once you get that, um, then yeah it's i always had hot food every day because it's such a an amazing experience part of why people go traveling mm-hmm. is so that you can experience the food um so definitely in the non-pointy fridge regions it was yeah. a little bit like noodles and a broth or a soup which is very very hearty and and definitely keeps you well fueled and then in Yunnan I think things got a bit braver so yeah lots of greens and lots of really lovely sauces and spices so it's really good yeah I've had a I've I've known quite a few vegetarians to try to even go like Korea and stuff and like the the concept of no meat is tough for like in Korea, I remember somebody saying, like, I asked for no meat, and then they brought it, and they're like, but this is chicken. And he's like, yeah, yeah. no meat. Like, I don't eat meat. And then they brought something else, and it had, like, little bacon pieces in it. And they're like, but bacon, not meat. And like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> I know, it is. Well, I've got to be honest. If food came out to me, and it had – sometimes they put the little, um, like, little meat chunks on it or in mm-hmm. the broth – I have to say I would eat it because it's my fault that I haven't been able to communicate that because I don't speak Chinese. And I I kind of think that that's that's just part of it. So in actual fact, on the journey, I probably ate more meat than I have in all of the years, you know, that I I ate meat from very young. But um, yeah, it's just, it's it's hot and I need the calories. So I'm just going to close my eyes. Yeah, I think sometimes (laughs) you just have to... You just have to go with the flow of it. It's kind of like um, for Muslims, you know, that want to eat halal food. But sometimes you're somewhere where you just don't have that choice. And you just have to accept Absolutely. the fact that 
based on the culture and the place you're in, you don't have that option. And I think the same goes with vegetarians. Sometimes, you know, you just got to eat a little bit of meat because, or you can just pick it out and try not to eat it. But and same with people like me, like if I'm in certain places in India, I'd have to accept the fact that I'm going to be a vegetarian for a while because that's just the way it goes, right? Yeah, true. Absolutely. And, And also if you're being hosted, um, you know, sometimes you just want to to get involved and to eat what's being brought out and 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 very often that involves eating meat. So yeah. there are definitely some times where I was like, this is what's on the table and they've been so kind yeah. and so generous to bring that out. And they're not gonna they, understand if you try to explain that you don't eat meat. Sure. They're just gonna think that you're being you're you're disgusted by them or something, you know, like so. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's uh, let's quickly talk about Southeast Asia. I want to jump forward after that to um, some of your hiking expeditions. But what were? Yeah. Where did you go in Southeast Asia? What did you love? What did you not love? Do you have a favorite country, um, place, food, all those things? Oh, okay. So I entered uh, from China into Laos, mm-hmm. um, and then went straight, uh, really, to Luang Prabang. Uh, because I nice. spent my Christmas there, which was so lovely. Love that um, city. I treated myself. Oh, I absolutely fell in love. I would I would go back to Laos and and go straight to Luang Prabang. The mm-hmm. night markets are beautiful. The people were so friendly. Um, just the architecture, all that kind of French colonial architecture, is just really fascinating to go and walk around so i really yeah i really fell in love with Laos as a country actually yeah i think going from china where the people are slightly more reserved and then entering straight into laos which is uh, you know lots of children running around and lots of sub ideas and, mm-hmm. and shouting hello to everybody as you cycle through and villages. chasing you and running this yeah 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 it felt like a real like instant shift and I'd not realized for a long time that, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily happen in China because it's culturally different. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so very much in Laos, it was a, a bit of a kind of an energy burst to my cycling. Um, then from Laos, I cycled all the way down to near Namthun and then Namthun Reservoir. And at that point, I exited uh, east to uh, cycle along the coast of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, so all the way down into uh, Saigon from there and then out um, into the south of Cambodia. Um, then cycled round to Phnom Penh and out to Angkor Wat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of north through Thailand along the north side of Bangkok. So I didn't go into Bangkok itself, um, near uh, Ayutthaya and Kanchanaburi. Yep. And then all the way down Thailand into Malaysia. So that was the route through, oh, nice. through Southeast Asia. And I flew home from, from Kuala Lumpur. Um, in terms of, of highlights, I've already mentioned um, Laos, but also um, in Malaysia, which was, again, country that I absolutely fell in love with um I met a family on my first day in Malaysia who said when I was cycling past Penang um they would love for me to go and stay with them Um, and so I stayed with them for about a week um and I 
was taken out for dinner by, with them and, and lots of their friends and yeah. um, met. Isn't Penang amazing? Penang's such a great island. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Lots of people from the local cycling club. I was taken to church because it was Easter, went up the Penang Hill with some of their friends, um, ate lots of local food. And I, I really loved the way um, that they they had specific dishes at specific restaurants yes. that they would go specifically for that and mm-hmm. um, so they would have their main course in one place and then they would all get into the car you know and they would go for ice kachang somewhere else yeah because they yeah they wouldn't eat the there. ice kachang. yeah for sure um yeah especially things like small meals like like charkway tiao they'll t- they'll go to like they'll have their family's favorite charkway tiao restaurant yeah. and they'll really yeah. only eat there yeah yeah, so and good. we also went out for um, tea halia. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some little back street um, kind of rest, uh, it's not a restaurant, it's a stall really with sit- the seats outside. Um, we went really late, about 12 o'clock at night because it was cooler. And we sat outside drinking tea halia, which is a very, very strong ginger mm-hmm. herbal mix. So good. Tea. So good. And I remember sitting outside at like, two in the morning thinking where else would I be sat outside drinking cups of tea with these beautiful people in the in the cool of the evening you know there's everyone's just minding their own business and having a nice chat and yeah it was it was a really fantastic experience so yeah Penang again has some really happy memories they were a super wonderful family I always wanted to move there it was um it was my it was on my I I lived in Malaysia seven years right so it was always that I was looking for a school there to teach at because I love Penang. Ah, so good. Such yeah. a good place. Such a good cycling community. Everything about it. Yeah. 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 I would absolutely go back. Yeah. If you ever move there, then send us an invitation. I'll let you guys know. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, my wife and I both miss Malaysia, man, because we, we, yeah, just the food, the people, everything. It's just such a great country. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely one to return to for me excellent let's talk um hiking but is it okay if i go fill up my coffee cup and then we carry of on take a, take a little stretch yeah, absolutely All right. yeah right i'll just go for a little wander stretch my leg hello 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 all right you're there all right coffee all filled up yeah i usually have two before i do anything in the morning and today i woke up really yeah. groggy and slow and i only had the one coffee so i'm, I'm definitely off my a game right now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully this will get you back on track. Try not to slurp it too much. <laughs> All right, let's talk hiking. Um you've done a couple pretty major hikes. Uh I mean they're nothing to like look at with uh I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but not nothing to be taken lightly. Um what exactly are the le jog? Sounds very French and Te Aurora. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, two, yeah, two two hikes. Um, so last summer I spent three months um, walking about two thousand kilometers um, up the the length of uh, Britain. So the Le Jog is because it's Land's End to mm-hmm. John O'Groats. So Land's End is the, the far western tip of Cornwall, which is in the southwest of the UK. Um, and then John O'Groats is in the northeastern tip of Scotland, right oh, on the north okay. coast. Um, so it essentially walks you all the way um, from the two furthest points on the on the mainland 
um, of of Britain. So if you were to walk the other way, people call that joggle. Um, so it's just yeah, it's just the the acronym. Um, and the Teararoa, um, that is a hike that's the the length of New Zealand. Um, so it's three thousand kilometers going from Cape Reinga in the very far north of the North Island, uh, and then it goes all the way down to Bluff, which is in the south of the South Island. Ah, okay, and. How do you compare hiking adventures with biking adventures? Well, I suppose they're both human powered. So that's kind of the the similarities, but they are very, very different experiences, um, principally in speed. Um, so, yeah, most people think that cycling is very slow, but walking is very, very slow. And going from the bike to being on foot, you realize just how slow walking is. Um, so cycling is is the perfect speed for for crossing a continent or crossing countries, bigger countries, human powered. I know that some people do walk across them, but um, it's it's much easier to do it by bicycle. So you're still seeing uh, and experiencing everywhere, uh, everything mm-hmm. and, and feeling like you're really out there um, and engaged with everything, but you can do it at a much greater speed. So walking allows you to to get off the roads and onto the the smaller trails away from vehicles um, and obviously enables you to be much more remote more easily than by bicycle. Do you find that there's more interaction with people too, just by the definition of being walking or by walking? Um, Not necessarily, simply because walking typically means that you're away from from places where people live typically because people typically live along on long roads or that kind of network um but obviously if you're walking through a town wearing a big backpack especially in New Zealand because a lot of people know about the trail mm-hmm. um then they'll know what you're doing and you'll they'll know um that you're that you're walking that path and um, so I think this year about 2,000 people, I think, walked the Tereroa. So it's really increasing every That's year growing, its, yeah. its popularity. Yeah, a lot of the, the traditional through-hikes are growing in popularity. And I year. think people are also bikepacking it now too. They're doing yes, some events along yeah. that route. Yeah, so the um, the I think it's the Aotearoa um, is a month cycle. Um, so it does take you on some kind of single tracks and mm-hmm. off roads. It's not the same route as the walking okay. route. Um, it's it does have it has quite a lot of uh, variants to that. But when we finished in Bluff, there was a lot of people finishing their um, their cycle route. So yeah, we were surrounded by bicycles and everybody was celebrating together, which was really nice. What are some of the highlights of the Lejog? Um, highlights are, as always, are, are meeting people along the way. And um, so I met a really wonderful woman um, called Jane, who found me very, very early in my trip when I was walking along the, the north section mm-hmm. of the southwest coast path down in Cornwall. And she met me or she got in touch with me through Instagram, um, which was one of the first time that's that's happened. Um, and she asked when I would be passing quite close to her house. Oh, and nice. then she brought a pic- she brought a picnic out. Um, so we sat on the 
seafront and had a picnic and then um she just invited me back to her house and asked if I wanted my clothes washing and my phone charging and we had endless cups of tea and really lovely conversations and then she set me back on the path again um and Jane and I have been in touch with each other ever since so she's probably oh. been my one of my biggest supporters um kind of all the way through all of the the rest of Land's Edge John O'Groats and and also the walk in New Zealand so yeah, yeah it's it's always meeting people these really lovely random encounters that you have um that people that you would never meet if you weren't out doing these things they're the, the things that I normally remember the most for sure I think it's it's weird that like as hikers travelers bikepackers and cyclists we we so easily just go to somebody's house when they offer us a picnic or yes. a laundry, but we always tell kids not to do that. <laughs> I know, I know. It's so true, isn't it? Everyone's like, uh, everyone's like, so you just went back to their house? I'm like, well, yes, like, of course you would do that. They seem nice. It, they seem nice and you make those instant judgments. And I think, I don't know why you feel, I feel so much more open you know now you've accepted generosity mm -hmm. from so many different kinds of people you know all the way across the world I just feel like oh it'll be all right if someone wants to give you something then I kind of feel like it's a bit of a blessing rather than anything else so yeah I'm fully up for accepting them when I interviewed the swag family who were cycling around the Australia they said that their kids are so much better now at in like being able to analyze people and situations like they know when mm. somebody's okay to approach and not you know like they're, they're they they had developed this skill even at age three and five of you know the same skills that we talk about like where you make immediate judgments and you you can tell within a few minutes if somebody's you feel that that person's trustworthy and whatnot just by how the interactions are going well the kids get really good at this as well so i mean maybe there's some yeah there's some good to be spoken of in that those experiences that's so interesting yeah absolutely and i think that that's what you're doing all the time because everybody you meet is is a new person typically um the vast majority anyway so you're constantly making those really quick decisions like do I stay and talk to them do I think they're okay um and and eventually you find out that 99.9 percent .9 of the people that you meet are just genuinely very interested yeah. in you and what you're doing and might only just want to take a photograph with you and then we'll we'll you know we'll leave and some people want a conversation and and equally you know both are equally nice experiences how is the weather on land's end or the lejog hike <sighs> oh absolutely atrocious okay um, i kind really of assumed because it's england but or great britain but <laughs> i know i really want to tell you that it was beautiful clear skies and um i didn't get rained on once but there definitely would be an untruth um so for the first few weeks it was really nice and then it, it just descended into a, a, a waterlogged walk for the for the rest of it really um yeah once you get into the north it was a particularly wet summer um and it rained yeah pretty much every day so you definitely don't want to be doing this walk if you mm -hmm. if you don't um yeah like getting your feet wet at least um it, that did make it a challenge because it's even a bit more rain than i'm used to and again i was as wild camping for the vast majority of nights so I did end up with a lot of wet kit um but you yeah you just learn how to deal with it and yeah and 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 yeah and crack on but it was it did make it more of a challenge that's for sure do you use like Gore-Tex socks or anything like that 
I did, yeah. So I bought my first pair of seal skin socks mm-hmm. um, just because my feet were getting um, really waterlogged all the time. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, it's not very nice just day after day because nothing will dry. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought I'd give them a go. And yeah, seal skins are, are great for, for, uh, a shorter amount of time I would say though it definitely was a point where they started letting water in but at least your yeah. feet are warm yeah so I mean I take anything at that point if your feet are wet all the time you're going to start to get like trench foot or what they called it during exactly. wartime it's just like these yeah it's just nasty and painful just yeah. really painful yeah. yeah really not very nice the good thing is once you get into the very north of Scotland um, there's quite a good bothy uh, network. Mm-hmm. So bothies are um, small buildings, probably old shepherd's huts um, that have been converted and people can go and sleep in them. And I've, oh, I've heard Scotland them. is good for this. Yeah. Yeah, the Mountain Bothy Association have all of the bothies online. And it does mean that you can at least get a dry night's sleep mm-hmm. without having to put your tent up. And if you know that bad weather is coming in, then there's a chance for you to just wait out that bad weather and, and be dry for the day. So they can really, um, well, they, they are really, have been really important in that walk that I did. Yeah, I, I remember... Um... I, when I lived in Sweden for a year that, um, they have these on their trailwood networks, they have these little lean tos built that are elevated. They have mm. fire pits, cut wood, running water every 25 kilometers or so. So they're just fantastic. Like what a great oh. setup, you know, just to provide this to their citizens and I guess any other. Yeah, business. that's perfect. Yeah. It's so, all about having that. Once the citizens are like outdoor enthusiasts, then. You know, it's kind of, it's just about getting people outside and outdoors. And yeah, the Bothy Network is, is it's an amazing gift that mm-hmm. when I was in the Highlands, I used them all the time. And then you don't really realize until you come out of it, like, oh, it'd be really, be really nice to have that in other places yeah, as well. Yeah. Maybe one day. What are some of the highlights of the Terrora hike? Oh, there are, yeah, so many amazing places on, on Terrara. Um, so one of the, the, the biggest highlights for me was, uh, an area, a mountainous area called the Richmond Ranges, which is mm-hmm. in the, the north section of the South Island. Um, and it's known for really challenging mountainous terrain. So quite a lot of scree and a lot of scrambling. It takes about nine days, um, to go from uh, Levin, which is on the north side, um, out to St. Arnaud, which is on the, the south side of the range. Okay. And it means that you have to carry your food for that amount of time. Yikes. And because it's quite high energy, it's it's quite a, a lot of food that you're going to be carrying. Um, and for that nine days, um, I was just really blessed with amazing weather so you know fantastic morning weather when you can stand on top of a mountain and all the clouds are sitting in the bottom of the valleys um, and all you can see is the uh, the peaks of all the mountains just poking out of the clouds as mm-hmm. far as the eye can see and I think at that point when you can see nothing man-made and it feels so wild and you know that you've got to walk yourself out through this landscape yeah um it it's such an amazing uh like sense of, of satisfaction that you've got yourself here um so definitely the richmond ranges is is oh i just absolutely loved it the nelson lakes area is another real highlight as well um so the blue lake 
you mm-hmm. walk past and it has as close to optical purity um as anywhere else in the world so it's so crystal clear um and then you go up along uh, the shores of lake constance and then over the wire pass and it's challenging again but but very rewarding like there are some really standout places um on the on the trail and and does the trail kind of go straight down the middle of um south island it goes straight yeah of the south island very Mm -hmm. much so so if you just look at the mountain chain it pretty much goes straight down the middle of that oh wow um so it's yeah so the south island people do come um and walk just the south island only um and quite a few people come and do that because it's it is the most wild uh there's a really good hot system as well so like we were talking yeah. about bothies new zealand has a hot system which um the terror very much makes use of that um but another highlight is the the trail community of people walking um the trail that you will have known um well by the time i'd finished i'd i'd known them for 5 months there was a group of uh, a dutch couple um who i walked with oh, for about the second half of the the north island and then mm-hmm. all through the south island um and then a girl from australia called georgia who i walked the south island with as well and they become like your trail family um and yeah that kind of experience of really being with people mm-hmm. was very much a new experience compared to other things that I've done. So the jog was completely solo, the bike trip, I cycled with people on and off, but predominantly solo. And then for um for walking in New Zealand, it's very much been part of a community which was different and I, I really enjoyed that difference. Oh that's cool. And you said there are some people that are just doing like this ultra light fast hiking and just fat, yeah. just fast, huh? fast yeah fast and light and they carry very little kit everything is is uh weighed to the gram um and and that style really really suits them and the way that they want to walk which is you know which is quick and just moving very swiftly through the landscape and it absolutely has um positives um and i I commend those people because there's very very few luxuries in their kit um whereas i like um you know a cup of coffee in the morning so i have a little coffee filter and um you know i yeah i i carry a bit more kit so i'm definitely not a minimalist i remember being in indonesia in like 2012 when i did my first bike tour and i went hiking up a volcano with a couch surfing group Mm -hmm. and we started the one day at like 3 p.m so we could do some morning like sunrise summit with a little bit of camping in between and we were going up I think at around, you know, one in the morning to finish off to get there, or maybe two, two in the morning, we started up again to get to the top. And this Swiss guy comes flying past us. He stops for a minute, talks to us, says hi. And then we see him on the, oh no, we were descending already. We saw him coming up, talked to him. He missed sunrise. He was upset. And on the way back down, he's passing us and we're like, Oh, what are you doing now? He's like, oh, I'm going to go do the next mountain over too. And we're like, Holy shit. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. yeah some people are machines yeah. really machines and through the mountains they're just you know clipping along through the caves and just and, and ticking them off and loving it you know really mm-hmm. really enjoying what they're doing but everybody and that's the amazing thing about all of these things is everybody has their own way of doing it and what suits one person maybe doesn't suit somebody else mm-hmm. and everybody just 
you know, people carry the weight that they want to carry with the, the luxuries they want to carry or not, and kind of find, find their own way, which I really love. Yeah. I want to spend a little bit of time before we finish up talking about uh, doing these things as a woman. I know it's, it's a shame that we have to categorize, there has to be a category that we talk about and address things. But I think I, I have received messages from women that ask for you know, they, they want to know more about how to handle situations and things as a, as a female adventurer. Um, yeah. I want to ask you, what did your family think about your plans to do these big bike rides and hikes and stuff? Uh, they were, they were really supportive. Mm -hmm. Um, and my family are really great with, with everything that I have wanted to do. Um, so I've been floating the idea for a while and initially was just kind of joking about it to them um, just dropping it into conversation yeah. at certain points quite slowly um, but I knew that they would give me their support um, I think that they I think they really trust me to make good choices yeah. to look after myself and and to stay as, as safe as possible so that really helps um, and and also I think they know that I I'm really good at keeping in touch with them when I'm on the road as well and mm -hmm. um, so yeah they don't they don't, I would hate for them to worry about me. And um, so I make sure that they know if I'm uh, going to go out of phone reception for, for however long and um, when I'm going to be back in reception, I, I get in touch with them. Oh, that's, so that's really good. Nice. But, yeah. yeah. They're really supportive of me and I'm, I'm really thankful for that. Have there been situations where you felt kind of unsafe as a solo traveling woman? Um, there's never been a situation that I didn't think that I could get out of. Okay. Um, so, you know, either by, you know, if you're stopped at the side of the road and, and someone comes up to you and you just, well, you're not too sure, then you can just hop on your bike and cycle away mm -hmm. or you can go and find someone to talk to. So I think that sometimes actually being a woman can be a bit of a superpower. Well, that's how I like to think about it yeah. because... Perhaps, um, you know, people might not feel as, as threatened, perhaps, or it might be that every time I asked if I could pop my tent up somewhere, you know, there would be occasionally like a whole village would rally round and try and find me the safest place to go. Oh, nice. Or if they didn't think that there was somewhere safe, then maybe they would put them in their, in, put me in their garden in my tent. Or there's been a times when I've asked and, you know, they brought me into the house. So it's, it's quite hard to say because obviously I've never been a solo man traveling. So I don't really know what the direct comparison is. But yeah. I would say for me personally, it's I have never felt like it has been a disadvantage to me traveling. That's amazing. I've always been received really positively and had really amazing experiences. That's good. I was trying to think of how to formulate that question. I was looking at it on my, my, my page here. And I like the way you formulated it as saying kind of a superpower because I'm like, Mike, my, my way of is like, have you ever gotten special treatments? But I'm like, that sounds weird. That's not what I mean. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Is being a woman a superpower? It's like, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I assume there are times that people take care of you better than they would a guy, you know, like they see a woman, they stay, I mean, on the downside is they see it because they're, they think, oh, vulnerable and you know, all these things, which you don't want them to feel at the same time. But at this, but on the flip side is you get treated a little bit better. You get that extra hand. You get the, there's some benefits yeah, that come from it. 
There definitely are benefits. You just have to be aware that you're going to be asked a lot as a woman where your husband is and where your children are. And as long as you're happy with that, mm-hmm. then <laughs> you're going to be fine. You say, I left, him at home. I left him at home with the kids. <laughs> yeah, I know. Absolutely. <laughs> um, for, for women out there thinking of doing and going on these kinds of adventures, what kind of things can they do to mitigate um, dangerous encounters or bad situations? Yeah, I think that mostly comes from um, really kind of your experience of mm-hmm. being on the road, which is which will be built up over time. Like we talked about and earlier, most, that sixth sense of knowing who's absolutely. good and bad. That's what you're working on very often. And I always liken it to like the background hum of a fridge. Like it doesn't have to be in the forefront of your mind all mm-hmm. the time. It can just sit at the back. It's just being aware of your surroundings, um, but not in a, in a paranoid, I'm not enjoying myself kind of a way. Just in something, you know, yeah, just by just by being aware. Um, perhaps if you're going into a country, just doing a bit of reading maybe about cultural practices so that you don't upset or offend anybody or anything like that. Um, like I say, I did a lot of camping. Um, and, and really, I kind of, when I was camping or finding a place to camp, I would either want a lot of people to know where I was. So I would find a big group of people in a village Mm -hmm. and ask if there was somewhere that I could camp or no one. And I don't know why those two things are very kind of polar opposite. I think Adam talked about exactly that when we talked about Japan. He said you either camp right right in plain sight of everybody or really hidden, right? Yeah, that's exactly. So I, I mean, I have camped in some very non-Instagrammable um, places because I didn't want anyone to know where I was or in a school, you know, or you, and mm. just asked and, you know, very often you'll get pointed to, to the local school or, or somewhere that you can pop your tent and then everybody knows where you are. And it's those, yeah, it's that kind of spectrum, either ends of the spectrum that I, um, yeah, really really made the most of if I was putting up a tent. Okay. Now, yeah, that really tied in well with um, the last question I had in this section, which was about advice to give to other women. So I think... uh... Yeah. My advice is that if you want to do it, just go and do it. Don't worry if you don't have all the answers. Um, It may look like we have uh, a whole back catalogue of experience, but we all started from not knowing anything. And, and finding things out as you're going along and gaining experience is really all part of the joy of traveling. And it's why we do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, if you if you want to go, I wholly recommend it. Um, yeah, I don't know anybody who's ever regretted leaving on, on any kind of journey like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this last, the last question on it. Um, might sound weird coming from a guy, but monthly cycles while touring, mm. how do you handle all these things? And um, I guess every woman is different too. Like some women get worse cramps than others. and um, For sure. Yeah. So like, yeah, like you said, every woman is different and, and everybody would, uh, every woman would deal with this in a, in a different way. Um, so personally, um, I have a, a menstrual cup called a moon cup. Um, because it's reusable, it's really easy to clean. So it means that if you're in the middle of nowhere and you suddenly come on your period and you're like a week away from the nearest shop, which probably doesn't sell any sanitary mm-hmm. products, 
you have it with you. Um, I know that it doesn't work for everybody, um, but it was ideal for me. And, and quite a lot of women that I spoke to will use uh, a Mooncut or similar brands. Um, so it's also probably quite important to note that um, periods change um, very often if you're traveling. So mine got much lighter while I was cycling and walking. Um, and I think that's to do with the kind of the high energy output of, of your okay. body. Um, so some people get some people get lighter and some some people get heavier. So it's a bit of luck of the draw. Um, but I think if you are going to try something different, then probably best to try it out at home and see if you like it. Um, and and yeah, don't be like don't be put off because you're going to yeah. have periods on the road. Um, I I actually quite enjoy having my period because it's it's a rhythm um, and it makes me feel much more in tune to my body. So it's definitely not something that I would um, want to uh, suppress using any mm-hmm. kind of contraception, which I know is an option and some women do choose to go down that route. Um, but yeah, just be positive and, and, yeah, and, and crack on when you can. Yeah, I recently listened to a, a podcast and it was um, a, a woman ultra endurance racer and she talked about like how after her period she's got this flux of power and energy and like so when yeah. she goes crazy strong on like races and stuff and like so interesting how everybody's bodies are different. <laughs> and I think the age of not talking about them is over mm-hmm. and the more people can talk about them and the more people can be open about periods and menstrual cycles and and get the information out there then it just starts to become less taboo so i'm all yeah. i'm all for talking about anything absolutely <laughs> um did you return to the uk because of covid19 or was that already kind of in the works and you were just finishing your hike and going home it was definitely already in the works uh for sure i am um i'm i'm earlier coming home um than i should have been i should have only returned home about three days ago or two days ago oh, now. Okay. um so when i had finished and i was really fortunate to to finish the hike when i did because a few people mm-hmm. who hadn't finished unfortunately got involved in the new zealand lockdown so oh no didn't end up finishing this season which is really heartbreaking um so yeah, I ended up finishing and then um, lots of people were already making inroads into going home. I yeah. rebooked flights. So I pulled my flights forward and then they got cancelled and then I got caught in the New Zealand lockdown. So it's all a bit of a flurry to try and get home. But fortunately, I booked a new set of tickets and then ended up home about three and a half weeks ago. So yeah, nice. quite lucky. Yeah, it's like New Zealand, <clears throat> lovely country, but you don't really want to be stuck there in a lockdown because it's so expensive. and it's- really expensive and i think yeah, when, so a, I when was... a british person says that new zealand's expensive like you got to really appreciate that it is expensive <laughs> yeah it is i was really lucky in that i spent the first few days of lockdown on a farm um, and it was a girl who uh, i was walking with on the trail it was her uncle who had a farm um, and they said that i could go and spend as long uh, as I wanted with them because we were unsure about when I was going to get home. So that was, that's, that's Kiwi culture mm-hmm. um, is, you know, they're again, super generous, so kind. Um, so essentially I can still be hit working on a farm in New Zealand if I hadn't been able to get tickets to come home. Oh, wow. Nice. What is, uh, what's next for you, Katie? Any big adventures planned or? 
Um, what's next? Probably I need to um, earn a few pennies before I go <laughs> off on my next adventure. Unfortunately, real life um, hits a little bit when you come home. Yeah. Um, but I definitely will always have plans in the making. So I don't think that this will be the end of um, my my adventures, mm-hmm. whether they be big or small, that's for sure. Um, so at the moment, it's more about setting up a base and um finding a bit of a community to settle into which i haven't experienced for quite a while now um yeah i'm really working on that um maybe starting to do some triathlons oh and wow nice kind of branching out into some some more events and yeah staying staying fit staying active that's yeah. that's my plans for the moment yeah nice and what kind of work are you going to look for back into the the guiding and that kind of thing? Definitely back into the yeah conservation sector. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully working with uh, volunteers and community groups and things like that. Um, yeah, I really enjoy working with people and um, and talking to people about various issues, conservation issues. So and much more practical, hopefully. Nice. And where can people find out more about you if they want to follow your adventures? So Instagram is probably the best. So I'm at you've got to wonder with underscores um, between all the words. Um, so yeah, you can find me on there. Excellent. Thank you for all your time. I don't really have any other questions unless you have something you want to share that I didn't think about. Um, no, I think I think that's been very thorough. I think I've answered everything. Woo! Another one. Successful. <laughs> Woo! <Woo-hoo! laughs> Thanks for all your time, Katie. And I do look forward to uh, following your adventures and hopefully even meeting at some point someday. Who knows Uh, if this ever blows over. Yeah, fingers crossed we all get out to play soon. Uh, It's been really nice to talk to you, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. You too, Katie. Bye-bye. Bye. I want to end my show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I receive from you regularly. It really motivates me to keep going with this project and to share people's amazing stories. If you have comments or questions, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or go to www.biketouradventures.com and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, blog posts, videos, and my new touring tips page, which is slowly getting created. I'll also be integrating the Touring Talk podcast episodes into the Touring Tips section so you can listen to or read on whatever topics you like. If you're enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can also become one of my show supporters by going to www.patreon.com slash biketouradventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. Much appreciated and keep on peddling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. 
This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling.